This is Fresh Air. I'm David B. Cooley, in for Terry Gross. Russell Banks, the author whose best-selling books include Affliction, Continental Drift, and The Sweet Hereafter, died of cancer Sunday. He was 82 years old. Banks was born in 1940 and grew up in Barnstead, New Hampshire. In the early 1960s, he was a pipe fitter working for his father, who, like his father before him, was a plumber. But Banks's father also was an alcoholic and abusive. Memories the son dealt with by becoming a writer and examining them in such novels as Affliction. A movie version of that novel won an Oscar for actor James Coburn, and the film version of Banks's The Sweet Hereafter won the grand prize at the Cannes Film Festival. His novels Continental Drift and Cloud Splitter, about the abolitionist John Brown, were finalists for the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. Russell Banks taught writing at Princeton University. Terry Gross interviewed him in 1989 when he had just published Affliction. That novel asks if it's possible to break the chain of male violence. It's narrated by a character named Rolf Whitehouse, who tells the story of how his brother Wade turned into a man even more violent than their father. I'd like you to do a reading from Affliction, and this is a scene in which the the father who beats his wife and his mm-hmm. children mm-hmm. is uh, confronting his son, and the son has mm-hmm. to figure out what what to do. And this is this is the older son in the book, Wade. Yeah, Wade. White. Wade is is the protagonist really of the of the novel, and um, and we're dealing with him as an adult for the most part um, for two weeks in his life, really. Um, but this scene and it takes place when he's about sixteen years old, um, and. Um, it's um, it's really his part of his essential childhood. Um, he's, uh, his father has um, he's, in, he's 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 tried to confront his father um, in the middle of a quarrel between his father and mother, um, and the father says, uh, "You're telling me you are trying to tell me what I'm supposed to be afraid of. You think I'm afraid of you." He showed his large teeth and made a quick move toward Wade. And when Wade jumped, he stopped and folded his arms over his chest and laughed. Jesus H. Christ, he said. What a candy ass. Without thinking it, Wade reached behind him into the dish rack and his hand wrapped itself as if of its own volition around the handle of the skillet, heavy, black, cast iron, and he lifted it free of the rack and swung it around in front of him. The sound of his heart pounded in his ears like a hammer against steel, and he heard his voice, high and thin in the distance, say to his father, If you touch her or me or any of us again, I'll kill you. His father quietly said, Jesus. He sounded like a man who had just broken a shoelace. I mean it, I'll kill you. He lifted the skillet in his right hand and held it out and just off his shoulder like a ping-pong paddle and he suddenly felt ridiculous. Without hesitation, Pop walked quickly around the table, came up to his son and punched him straight in the face, sending the boy careening back against the counter and the skillet to the floor. Grabbing him by his shirt front, Pop hauled the boy back in front of him and punched him a second time and a third. A fourth blow caught him square in the forehead and propelled him along the counter to the corner of the room where he stood with his hands covering his face. Come on, his father said, and he advanced on him again. Come on, fight back like a man. Come on, little boy, let's see what you're made of. 
Wade yanked his hands away and thrust his face open-eyed at his father and cried, I'm not made of what you're made of, and Pop hit him again, slamming Wade's head back against the wall. Wade covered his face with his hands once more, and he began to cry. Pop turned away in disgust. You sure ain't, he said, and he walked over to the door, where he turned back to Wade and said, Next time you start telling your father what to do and what not to do, make damn sure you can back it up, buddy boy. Then he went out, slamming the door behind him. Wade let himself slide slowly down to the floor, where he sat with his, arm, with his legs straight out, his head slumped on one shoulder, his arms flopped across his lap, a marionette with its strings cut. Well, it's a, it's a, a terrific scene. Um, you know, the two brothers in this book, one of them, Wade, who is in this scene that you just read, decides to fight back at some point, whereas his other brother, his younger brother, Rolf, mm-hmm. um, learns to hang his head in shame and back away, something he right. learned from his mother. When you were growing up in a family with an abusive father, did that seem like mm-hmm. the two alternatives, to hang your head in shame and back away, or to learn how to fight back? Yeah, I think that, um, yeah, for a boy, that's certainly the two alternatives, uh, because you um, you can imagine, and you internalize early, and then later... Um, put into action that fantasy of of revenge of fighting back um and uh, and wade's taken that route um despite its destructiveness in his life and then or you can um run you can you can be the denier in a sense you can cut yourself off from others and remove yourself from family or community and all forms of intimacy like rolf the narrator of the book which did you do well, in a sense, I did both, I think, um, at different stages of my life. When I was very young, I mean, when I was in my late teens, early 20s, and so on, I was one of those turbulent, uh, violent young men, um, always on the edge of, uh, of exploding, and oftentimes actually exploding, a barroom brawler kind of person that, um, that uh, society has kind of mixed feelings about. On the one hand, he's often attractive and the hero of a lot of films and television specials and so forth. On the other hand, he's a, a repugnant and, um, and a chaotic individual. And then later, um, I think I went through a period of my life where I was um, distanced and detached and protected myself and protected others through that. Mm-hmm. Is the scene that you just read a scene from personal experience? Well, uh, to some degree. Um, in terms of the boy wanting to... Um, defend his mother and understanding his role in the family as that. That was certainly uh, something that I experienced uh, emotionally and and situationally, not necessarily at the same age or exactly the same circumstances. And then failing to to be a man, as it were, uh, in those terms that the father was defining, to rise to that occasion, failing to, um, to become that person. So that's, yeah, that's, that's, I mean, that's, a, in a way, that's the essence of that scene, is that the challenge is thrown down, be a man, um, and to be a man, he's got to fight him, um, and not be a victim, not just be beaten by him. Um, Rolf, the brother who withdraws, um, yeah. says at one point, I became a careful adult. It may have been a high price to pay, never having been carefree, but mm. at least I avoided being afflicted by the man's violence. 
but he kind of comes to realize that that there's other kinds of affliction from this violence too, That's which right. is the, the, the knowledge that you're withdrawing from life to protect That's yourself. Right. And, and I was wondering at what point y- you started to to realize that, and also to to fear this um, kind of deeper affliction that it's something that that you would carry that in a way someone who came from an abusive family might mm-hmm. be something of a time bomb themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, well, yeah, Rolf is sort of whistling in the dark there uh, in the, the passage you quoted. Um, and part of his telling of the story is a way of his realizing that he is whistling in the dark so that the last lines of the book, in a way, are, are his gradual admission that, um, that he's still locked in in some way. Uh, and that's certainly the first step toward perhaps release from the situation. My own case, um, I, it's hard to say. This is a process and a lifelong one. I've been writing about um, this kind of men and boys uh, for most of my career in one way or the other. Most of the time, and uh, I think less so now, um, indirectly and obliquely. But as my own emotional life has become a little bit less tangled and and um, and turbulent and conflicted um, I've been able to, as a writer to approach the uh, the characters and the world that they live in more directly um, I mean as a novelist I have at I have access to certain tools and strategies I guess for lack of a better word um, that perhaps um, a person normally doesn't have just because for instance memory is is a crucial a novelist tool that that has to be cultivated and, and um, preserved. And so um, I'm forced again and again through that to go back to my own childhood. Russell Banks speaking to Terry Gross in 1989. He's the author of such acclaimed novels as Continental Drift, Affliction, and The Sweet Hereafter, all of which were adapted into Hollywood movies. Terry Gross spoke to Russell Banks again in 1995 when he had just written another book called Rule of the Bone. The narrator of that book is a 14-year-old named Chappie from upstate New York who wears a nose ring and a mohawk. He steals from his parents to finance his dope habit, gets kicked out of the house, becomes homeless, and sets off on a low-life adventure. Banks began that conversation with Terry with a reading from Rule of the Bone. Anyhow, my life got interesting, you might say. The summer I turned 14 and was heavy into weed, but I didn't have any money to buy it with, so I started looking around the house all the time for things I could sell, but there wasn't much. My mother, who was still like my best friend then, and my stepfather Ken, had this decent house that my mother had gotten a divorce from my real father about 10 years ago, and about that she just says she got a mortgage, not a house, and about him she doesn't say much at all, although my grandmother does. My mom and Ken both had these cheesy jobs and didn't own anything you could rob, at least not without them noticing right away it was gone. Ken worked as a maintenance man out at the air base, which is like being a janitor, only he said he was a building services technician. And my mom was a bookkeeper at the clinic, which is also a nothing job, looking at a computer screen all day and punching numbers into it. It actually started with me roaming around the house after school looking for something that wasn't boring, porn books or videos maybe, or condoms, anything. Plus, who knows, they might have their own little stash of weed. My mom and especially Ken were seriously into alcohol then, but maybe they weren't as uptight as they seem, I'm thinking. Anything is possible. 
The house was small, four rooms and a bathroom, a mobile home on cinder blocks like a regular house, only without a basement or garage and no attic. And I'd lived there with my mom and my real dad from the time I was three until he left, which happened when I was five. And after that, with my mom and Ken, who legally adopted me and became my stepfather up until now. So I knew the place like I knew the inside of my mouth. Russell Banks, thanks for reading that. You you have some things in common with the character in your book. Your your father was abusive. You were a rebellious teenager, but you were rebellious. Um, I don't know, thirty some odd years ago. Were there mysteries that this character had for you that were that were were, were partly maybe because of the times? Because he's rebelling in the nineteen nineties, mm-hmm. and there are some things. Uh, from what he might get tattooed to what he might be listening to mm-hmm. to how he's going to act out his rebellious feelings, you know, that would be different from yours. Oh, yeah, sure. The main thing, uh, I think probably the most obvious thing, is drugs. Um, when I was 16, I stole a car and ran across the country and disappeared for three months and, um, you know, did some of the, the um, um, destructive and angry uh, things that, uh, that the bone does and that a lot of kids do. Um, but there wasn't the danger. Um, I couldn't step into the world of drugs um, that easily and that quickly. I would have had to have um, really worked hard to do that. Uh, and this was, you know, in the late 50s. Um, your father, who was abusive, left your family when you were 12. So while he was part of the family, he was always uh, bigger than you, uh, mm-hmm. probably a lot bigger than you. You're, mm-hmm. You were a kid. Mm-hmm. Did you ever confront him as a man? Oh yeah, we, we we made our peace. Actually, I, I went back and uh, and dealt with my father very closely. I even worked alongside him. He was a plumber, and I became a plumber, and uh, and worked with him, um, and uh, and even lived in his house for a period too when I was in my twenties, and um, became um, never really affectionate, uh, but close, uh, if that's possible, and it certainly. F- uh, was how I experienced it. We were close. I, I was uh, very involved with him right up to the end of his life. He died in 1979 at 63 um, when I was um, in my 30s. And um, so, yeah, I, I, we dealt. Um, I never, um, I think, had that kind of um, vengeful uh, clarification with him, but I didn't really need it or want it by the time I, I was uh, in my 20s. There's something that I think I might have asked you about once before, but uh, this still really um, interests me. You you once said that um, your your father felt that you know moving up in life was was a betrayal, that mm-hmm. it was somehow a, a rebuke of the life that he had led. Yeah. And, and unless you were just doing some wheeler dealer thing and finagling something, yeah. in which case that that was fine. What do you think is the difference between the impulse to to you know, sacrifice for the children so the children can have more than you do, and the impulse to feel well, well, well why should they have more than me? What's good enough for me is going to be good mm-hmm. enough for them. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's a difference in, in believing in the American dream and um, and 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 no longer believing in the American dream. That 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 if one generation sacrifices itself, the next gen for the next generation, that that next generation will profit from it and move up and and and. and in society and be empowered in such a way as to make it even better for the third generation. It's that three-generation syndrome. And um, and many Americans have not, after having been here for a long time, uh, African Americans and white Americans uh, too, who um, have gone through eight, ten, fifteen generations in America, uh, don't find that that, uh, that model, that, that dream doesn't describe their, their experience. And I think they grow bitter. 
um, and uh, and mistrustful, profoundly mistrustful um, of anybody who um, who separates themselves uh, from from them by moving up, you know, and so forth. They've, it isn't that they just accept their fate; it's that they they feel. Uh, there is no realistic alternative, and if you're advancing yourself uh, in society, you're rejecting them. It's a way of disconnecting yourself from them. So tell me more about why you think your, your father felt that, you know, if one of his kids moved up, it was somehow a betrayal. Well, it probably, uh, since he didn't feel he was sacrificing in his youth, my father's a very bright man, very gifted man in many ways. He was a child of the Depression and went to work in this, when he was 16 and uh, dropped out of school and, and um, um, worked with his hands his entire life. Um, and he was bitter about that, I think, and, and didn't feel as though uh, that was his, he was sacrificing anything. Uh, so he was in some ways not connected to his, uh, to his own children, uh, the next generation, to their future. Um, and so, um, by having that sense of disconnectedness, if I didn't um, live his life uh, exactly, uh, more or less the same, I challenged and humiliated him for that. It wasn't as though, you know, um, by my living a different kind of life, I validated and justified a sacrifice on his part. Do you think that held you back for a long time? I think it injured my sense of self-esteem and made me feel for a long time um, essentially inadequate and incapable of, uh, of achieving. Um, I wasn't raised to believe that, really, that, that anything was possible for me and that, um, that my parents were sacrificing in order to uh, advance me in the world. So, yeah, I think that there was a, a bit of a disability there. Um, but um, on the other hand, it made me, in a way, uh, more the master of my own fate, too. I didn't owe anything to anybody backwards in time, you know. Whatever I got, one way or the other, I got it myself. Was there a teacher who helped kind of counteract that sense of um, advancement as betrayal? Who, who, who? Yeah, early on, in my early 20s, I had the great good fortune to run into the novelist Nelson Algren when uh, he was in his late 40s and I was in my early 20s and uh, it was purely you know fortuitous and and, uh, and he he read some of the stories and I was that I was then writing and I was working as a pipe fitter actually in Concord New Hampshire at the time and had gone up to Breadloaf Writers Conference um, uh, because I admired his work and I saw his name on on an advertisement and uh, had taken a week off work and drove up to Vermont to to uh, to be a participant in this conference and he um, this is another case of a guy who was glad I had a driver's license to befriend me because it goes Algren, like a lot of American uh, novelists of the open road, didn't have a driver's license, <laughs> like Jack Kerouac, and, um, and needed me to drive him around, so, which I happily did. Uh, but he, he, he was a, a little larger than that and had uh, a greater sense of his own uh, responsibility and power than that and, and became a kind of a mentor and a model in some ways for me, very important ways when I was a young writer that lasted, and they last even to today. I mean, I'll still sometimes find myself saying, well, I wonder what Nelson would do now. What would he say here? What would he, how would he handle this situation? Did, did he help you uh, figure out that you could use the stuff of your life as the subject of fiction? Yeah, absolutely, that you could bear witness, and that bearing witness was important and, uh, and, uh, and at the center of American literature, really, and going back to Whitman. Russell Banks speaking to Terry Gross in 1995. 
The author of Continental Drift, Affliction, and the Sweet Hereafter died last Sunday at age 82. After a break, we revisit an interview with photographer Larry Sultan, whose pictures are the inspiration for a new Broadway show. Book critic Maureen Corrigan reviews the novel Sam by Allegra Goodman. And film critic Justin Chang reviews No Bears, one of his favorite movies from last year. I'm David Cooley, and this is Fresh Air. Hi, this is Molly C.V. Nesper, producer at Fresh Air. And this is Seth Kelly, also a producer at Fresh Air. If you like the Fresh Air podcast, we think there's a pretty good chance that you'll also like the Fresh Air newsletter. It's a weekly newsletter written by us, the people who help make the show. You'll get all the week's interviews and reviews in one place. Plus, staff recommendations, interviews from the archive, bonus audio, and what's coming up on the show. Imagine an email you enjoy getting. To subscribe, go to whyy.org slash fresh air. This is Fresh Air. I'm David Cooley, professor of television studies at Rowan University in New Jersey, in for Terry Gross. Allegra Goodman says that her new novel called Sam was inspired by her daughter, who, when she was little, was constantly in motion. Goodman wondered what happens to that reckless energy in girls as they grow up. Our book critic, Maureen Corrigan, has a review of Sam. The last couple of years have taught us all to be cautious about our New Year's expectations. But any year that begins with the publication of a new novel by Allegra Goodman promises, just promises, to be starting off right. In her over 30-year career, Goodman has distinguished herself as a crack literary cartographer, a scrupulous mapper of closed worlds. For instance, her 2006 novel, Intuition, transported readers deep into the politics and personal rivalries of an elite cancer research lab. Catterskill Falls, which came out in 1998 and was a finalist for the National Book Award, was set in the Orthodox Jewish summer community that gave the novel its title. In contrast, the subject of her latest novel, a coming-of-age story called Sam, may at first seem overly familiar— Goodman herself says in an introductory letter to her readers that she feared this novel might seem small and simple. It does. But mundane as the world may be that Sam depicts, it's also tightly circumscribed by class and culture. In its own way, the working-class world of Gloucester, Massachusetts, is just as tough to exit as some of the other worlds that Goodman has charted. The novel follows a white working-class girl named Sam from the ages of seven to about 19. Her household consists of her loving, chronically exhausted young single mother, Courtney, and her younger half-brother, Noah, who has behavioral issues. Sam's dad, Mitchell, is a sweet magician, musician, and addict who erratically appears and disappears throughout much of her girlhood. During one of the early periods when he's still in town, Mitchell takes Sam to a rock climbing gym. Hurling herself against a wall of fabricated boulders and cracks and trying to scrabble her way to the top becomes Sam's passion. It's also the novel's implicit metaphor for how hard it will be for Sam to haul herself up to a secure perch above her mom's grinding life of multiple low-wage jobs. 
Goodman tells this story in third person through Sam's point of view, which means the earliest chapters sweep us through events with a seven-year-old's bouncy eagerness and elementary vocabulary. That style matures as Sam does, and her personality changes, becoming more reined in by disappointment and a core sense of unworthiness sparked by Mitchell's abandonment. By the time Sam enters her big public high school, where she feels like a molecule, she's shut down, even temporarily giving up climbing. Sam's mom, Courtney, keeps urging her to make plans. She's naturally good at math, so why doesn't she aim for community college, where she might earn a degree in accounting? But Sam shrugs off these pep talks. She subconsciously resigns herself to the fact that her after-school and summer jobs at the coffee shop and the dollar store and the pizza place will congeal into her adult life. Sam is a rare kind of literary novel, a novel about a process. Here, it's the process of climbing and falling, giving up, and in Sam's case, ultimately rousing herself to risk wanting more. The pleasure of this book is experiencing how the shifts in mood take place over time, realistically. But that slow pacing of the novel also makes it difficult to quote. Maybe this snippet of conversation will give you a sense of its rhythms. In this scene, Sam has unexpectedly passed her driving test, and so she and her mom Courtney and brother Noah are celebrating by spreading a sheet on the couch and eating buttered popcorn and watching the Bruins on TV. Kids, here's what I want you to remember, Courtney says. You don't give up, and you will get somewhere. Nobody is listening because the score is tied. You've got to have goals like... College, Sam and Noah intone, eyes on the TV. They're glad when the phone starts ringing and Courtney takes it in the bedroom. At first, it's quiet. Then Sam can hear her mom half pleading, half shouting. By the time Courtney returns, the game is over. She sinks down on the couch and tells them Grandma had a fall. Courtney has to drive out tomorrow and stay for a few days to help her. The weariness, the sense of inevitability, is palpable. Goodman doesn't disparage the realities that can keep people stuck in place, but she also celebrates the mysterious impulse that can sometimes, as in Sam's case, prompt someone to resist the pull of gravity and find her own footholds beyond the known world. Maureen Corrigan is a professor of literature at Georgetown University. She reviewed Sam, the new novel by Allegra Goodman. Coming up, we hear about a 1989 family photo exhibit that is now the basis of a new Broadway show. This is Fresh Air. Pictures from Home is a new show previewing on Broadway today, starring Nathan Lane, Danny Burstein, and Zoe Wanamaker. It's based on a 1992 photo memoir by the late photographer Larry Sultan about his childhood in the post-war baby boom generation in Southern California. Before it was a book, it was an exhibit at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. Terry Gross spoke to Larry Sultan in 1989 when his exhibit was on display. 
Sultan mixed then-recent photos of his parents with snapshots taken in the 1950s and early 60s. By combining recent and old photos, Sultan reassessed his family history and examined his parents' pursuit of the American dream. Well, for your project Pictures from Home, you not only took a lot of new pictures of your parents and their house, but you used a lot of old family photos. So this required you going back and looking at lots of old pictures of your family. Did you find in a lot of the old photos that there was an almost ritualistic quality? Pictures taken at parties, at vacations, at at certain points in one's life when one is supposed to take pictures. Yes, but I think you know. I think you're right. They they were not only ritualistic. I I saw them as as mythic pictures, and they weren't family snapshots. They were movies, and uh, they were eight millimeter films that mm-hmm. began in 1942, and and uh, I think uh, spanned 20 years. And I remember looking at these films and not only seeing them from a biographical point of view, like, oh, this was me when I was, you know, three or five or seven, but taking them out of that personal context and seeing them as these incredible myths of, of um, uh, almost an epic of an American family moving from back east to the uh, promise of the new life in the West. And um, when I took particular stills from those films, I think the myth, that mythic quality was even further enhanced. And um, so they're not only biographical, I, I see them as cultural artifacts as well. Can you tell me about the range of emotions that you experienced looking back at pictures of your parents when they were young? Hmm. Boy, that's, that's, uh, that's interesting because um, there's this phenomena where there's a double vision. Uh, all photographs, in a sense, are historical because the moment is, is gone. And so here I am looking at, at people who are actually younger than me and um, seeing that they had a life outside of me. You know, they're not only my parents, they had this independent existence, which is a, a fairly frightening notion, and it leads you to all kinds of uh, speculation that, that one doesn't want to get into, you know, about their intimate life. And so that was an interesting thing, to see them independently. And then to also see, I think, the melancholy I felt around the aging process, how uh, certainly the vitality of uh, my parents, and, and, I mean, it's inevitable the body changes, and, and uh, it's not a sad phenomenon as much as it is a, a, uh, an opportunity to watch this transformation of the body through time. Now, in addition to old photographs, you also have some old documents in your piece. Uh, letters, for instance, welcoming your father into the ever-sharp family when, when he started to sell uh, razor blades. Uh, why did you include some of these old documents, old uh, business letters and things like that, and where did you find them? Well, it was very important to include those because what I felt I was doing, and, and I think what I've done, is is try to create a, um, a pattern of public life and private life, of family and business, of success and perhaps conflict within the family. And so my father's um, business documents to me, they not only document his career, I think they really, in a way, indicate a time. I mean, welcome to the Eversharp family and mm-hmm. you're a team player. And I mean, it was this the sense of the 50s that was so full of that optimism and so full of that uh, hope uh, that one would enter a family and be taken care of and be part of a team and, and be a team player and believe in the product and blah, blah, blah. You know, it goes on. And it's a, it's a phenomenal record 
not only of that specific event in his life, but I think of a, of a time that's no longer uh, available to us. So uh, that that's interesting to me about how you can document a time through a very biographical, personal um, point of departure. Now, you've had to take a lot of new photos of your parents for your project. Um, your parents, I'm sure, uh, are used to smiling for photographs, and you tried to get candid shots. I think you, in fact, told them not to smile. <laughs> what were their reactions <coughs> to the kinds of photographs you wanted? Well, you know, I, I became a real pain. Uh, <laughs> I worked in this for, for seven years, and I really strained my parents' generosity. Uh, in the beginning, I think it was, you know, uh, I would follow them around. In fact, I went on vacation with them to Hawaii and uh, photographed them. And then as they got more and more accustomed to me being around, I'd follow them into their bedroom. And uh, After a while, they, they, in terms of the, the daily photographs in which they weren't necessarily conscious or posing, although there's always somewhat of a pose, that was fine. I think the problem really occurred when I would when we would set up a photograph and some of the photographs are staged and there was always this dilemma my, my father has a um, uh, uh, standard I think uh, successful businessman pose that uh, he's been practicing for years you know, you, you know this kind of steely looked and uh, <laughs> steely looked and you know look him in the eye and rigid body and in fact I think he'd cock his head looking off to the left into the future and uh, that's not what I wanted and there was um, uh, quite a disagreement about that. And in fact, part of the book is his response to my photographs and his response to the way I, photographs, I photograph and the way I represent him, which I think is, is a real crucial part of this work because I have no... Uh, I wouldn't presume that I'm telling the truth. I'm telling my version of the truth, but it's not the objective version. There is no objective version. Your father said to you that he doesn't like what you call introspection. When he sees one of those photos, he says, for the most part, that's not me I recognize in those photos. Yeah, I think, I think it's, you know, how we know ourselves. We have this repertoire of cells. I think, I guess, Roland Barthes calls it a repertoire of cells. And uh, I see my father, uh, well, the side of my father that interests me the most is that vulnerable, introspective side. Now, that's not a side that comes out very often, and it's certainly not a side that one shows to the public. And uh, perhaps, to be fair, there is a, a, a somewhat of a, of a lost look in one of those photographs, and that was important to me. And um, maybe I'm being accurate to my point of view and not so accurate to him, so um, he could be right. Did maybe that isn't him he recognizes. Maybe that's more me. Did you say a lost look? Yes, yeah, so a look that, that has uh, a taste of uh, melancholy to it. Let me uh, describe a photo that I think is, is exactly that, or at least that's how I read it. And it's a photo of your father all dressed up in a dinner jacket, and it looks like he's probably on the way out. Uh, but he's sitting on the bed, uh, just kind of looking off in this dinner jacket. And I, to, to me, it reads all dressed up for a kind of letdown. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, I really yeah, like that photo a lot. Yeah, he hates it. Oh, he really? No, okay. Hates it. How come? Well, because uh, um, he says that uh, he created the analogy that it was like having uh, doing a film and, and the actors are taking a break, and that's when you photograph them. And we were actually, uh, I asked him to get dressed up, and we were um, doing 
a, um, he was writing on the wall for me, uh, kind of a mock Dale Carnegie program, and he sat down on the bed just to rest. And you're right, it, it, it is all dressed up uh, with nowhere to go, in my mind. And uh, that's an ideological photograph. It, it uh, relates, in my point of view, to, um, I, I think, memory and, and one looking back on their life. Uh, maybe most of the challenges have been in the past. Uh, at least in terms of one's business life. And um, so, yeah, it's it's taken out of context. It's a fiction. I, I want to quote something that you write toward the end here. You say, Behind all the peering, the good pictures, the rows of film, and the anxiety of my project is the wish to take photography literally, to stop time. I want my parents to live forever. I think that's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. There was something that happened to me in the middle of this project that I think was very significant. And, uh, you know, when I, when I begin work, I, I have uh, really no idea where I'm going to go, but I, I need to think that I know where I'm going to go. And so I invent all these uh, notions that what I'm doing is, is sociological or whatever. And in the middle of this project, I, I had a photograph that I had made that was particularly moving to me. Uh, it was a close-up of my father as he was sleeping on a couch, taking mm. a nap in Palm Springs. And I looked at the picture on my desk, and it struck me that there's a chance that this p picture will outlive my father, that I'll be looking at this picture one day when, when perhaps he's not here. And it, it really changed my whole notion of what I was doing. I, I moved from the uh, sociological drop way down to the sense that I was um, making pictures that came from, I think, a need to uh, not only understand my parents, but to let them go in a certain set fashion, almost like an adolescent lets things go. I'm, I'm a late bloomer in that sense. So from that, uh, of course, uh, you know, photography does stop time. And uh, uh, it's, it's, a very, it's, a, it's an exterior form of memory. This existed. I mean, that's its, that's its greatest truth, is, is uh, to leave a trace of what, what has been. Photographer Larry Sultan speaking with Terry Gross in 1989. He died in 2009. Pictures from Home, written by playwright Shar White, is based on Sultan's memoir and previews on Broadway today. Coming up, Justin Chang reviews one of his top films of 2022, the Iranian film No Bears, which is now in theaters. This is Fresh Air. Last year, the Iranian writer-director Jafar Panahi, a longtime critic of his country's government, was arrested and imprisoned just a few months before his new movie, No Bears, premiered at film festivals. Set in a small town, the movie stars Panahi as a fictionalized version of himself. No Bears topped the list of our film critic Justin Chang's best films of 2022. It's now arrived in theaters. Here is his review. Jafar Panahi is one of the world's great filmmakers, and certainly one of the bravest. He emerged in the mid-90s and early 2000s with dramas like The Circle and Crimson Gold, which took bold aim at class and gender divisions in contemporary Iranian society. In 2010, the authorities charged him with making anti-government propaganda, forbade him to leave the country, and sentenced him to a 20-year filmmaking ban. But Panahi proved resourceful enough to defy that ban. 
he's since shot five features, many of them in secret. Because of these restrictions, his movies have turned increasingly inward, becoming more personal, more ruminative. He often stars in them himself, playing a good-natured but embattled director, also named Jafar Panahi, and reflecting on his difficult circumstances. Those circumstances have only gotten worse since last summer, when Panahi was arrested and began serving a six-year prison sentence. And so his latest movie, No Bears, completed not long before his arrest, is likely to be his last cinematic dispatch for a while. It's a brilliant movie, an intricate and layered drama that somehow manages to be funny, angry, playful, and despairing by turns. Panahi is as incisive a social critic as ever, and here he targets the misogyny and religious fundamentalism that hold sway across Iran, issues that led to the violent unrest currently gripping the country. But Panahi has also made a powerful and deeply pessimistic statement about the nature of cinema itself. The movies may be capable of magic, but here, he reminds us, they also have their limitations. Most of No Bears unfolds in a remote Iranian village, where Panahi, or rather a fictional version of Panahi, has come to stay for several days. He's directing a movie that's being shot close by, just across the border in Turkey. But because he can't leave Iran, he has to do everything remotely. Not an easy feat, given the area's spotty Wi-Fi. One day, he spends some time exploring the village and randomly snapping pictures, a seemingly innocuous activity that will come back to haunt him. Sometime later, a few villagers will approach him and ask to see his photos, which they suspect contain incriminating evidence of a love affair between a young woman and a young man who isn't her fiancé. Panahi denies having taken such a photo, and the story is ambiguous as to whether or not he really did. It doesn't even matter, since the villagers are so convinced of the couple's guilt that they try to badger Panahi into submission. A kind of tense, chilling comedy ensues, as the villagers' polite smiles and obsequious manners melt away, and reveal their underlying hostility. At the same time, the real Panahi doesn't treat the fictional Panahi as some kind of innocent. Sympathetic though he may be, the character can be somewhat clueless and entitled in his dealings with others, and he tends to get stuck in problems of his own making. One example is the movie he's directing, a kind of docu-fiction hybrid about a Turkish couple trying to flee local unrest using false passports. Telling that story becomes its own complicated ethical minefield, as the director, eager to depict a harrowing situation as realistically as possible, risks endangering and selling out his subjects. And so Panahi, not for the first time during his post-band phase, ponders the moral complications of his craft. Yes, photos and films can bring the truth to light, but don't they also frequently distort it? Is it possible to tell someone's story without exploiting or falsifying it? Even Steven Spielberg, a filmmaker whose circumstances are radically different from Panahi's, asked similar questions in his recent semi-autobiographical drama, The Fablemans. But with no bears, Panahi has made a much more idiosyncratic kind of self-portrait, 
he places himself in a hypothetical scenario and asks how he would respond. He seems to conclude that whatever his response might be, it would be crushingly inadequate. The movie's title refers to a local superstition in which the threat of bears outside the village is used to keep people from straying too far away. There are no bears, someone reassures Panahi at one point. But that doesn't mean that threats don't exist, or that violence isn't real. Even as Panahi weighs his dilemma, no bears moves inevitably toward tragedy, one that's all the more devastating when you consider what might happen to this great filmmaker and the country that he clearly loves. Panahi may well wonder what movies are good for, but no bears left me longing to see him make another. Justin Chang is the film critic at the LA Times. He reviewed No Bears, the new film by Jafar Panahi. On Monday's show, for Martin Luther King Day, a journey through the South to understand the soul of a nation. Imani Perry, a native of Birmingham who teaches African-American studies at Princeton, visits cities, small towns, and historic sites below the Mason-Dixon line. She reflects on the region's history and traces the steps of an enslaved ancestor. Her book is called South to America. I hope you can join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our senior producer today is Roberta Sherrock. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham, with additional engineering support by Joyce Lieberman, Julian Hertzfeld, and Al Banks. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.B. Nesper. For Terry Gross, I'm David B. Coolen.